Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Professor Patrick Gary. Patrick is a professor of law at the Knudsen School of Law at the University of South Dakota. And today we'll be discussing his book on South Dakota's Constitution that he wrote and published with the University of Oxford Press. Pat, welcome to History 605. Thanks a lot, Ben. Good to be here. Many people may have had a political science class in high school or college, and often taught in those classes is the Madison's Notes on the Constitution and so forth. South Dakota, in some ways, this this book is an explanation uh, based on the notes that were taken at the time from various sources about South Dakota's constitution. What was the purpose in writing this book? And I see it's a part of a series that the publisher did. What was the goal when they, or when you set up to write the book about what the audience would be and what purpose it would serve? Sure. Well, in general, I think the um, state constitution started achieving a, a greater importance. You know, we always seem to focus on the U.S. Constitution, and uh, many times we ignore the fact that there's 50 different state constitutions out there. And they um, exert their own very important uh, role. And so I think increasingly people have become more aware of them and more interested in, in exploring them. And of course, lawyers know that, that a lot happens um, uh, with state constitutions and, and with the jurisprudence of those constitutions. So that was in general. Um, and then more specifically, South Dakota really didn't have uh, you know, what I might call like a comprehensive reference source. There's certainly South Dakota historians that had written aspects about and concerning the development or, or the ratification of the Constitution, but nothing that sort of took a, a, a real comprehensive view of it. So what kind of education would uh, the typical law student get? You, you teach a course on the South Dakota Constitution for the law school students? Actually, we don't. Uh, we don't teach a course in state constitutional law. But, you know, we're a small law school, so, you know, mm -hmm. we can't maybe teach all the different courses that bigger law schools may teach a course on state constitutional law. But that gets to be a, a little specific. I've lately just been trying to um, rectify that by... Um, you know, the first uh, day or two in my uh, in my classes, I give a lecture on the South Dakota Constitution just as a, a kind of a brief primer on it and and to make students aware right. of it. And also there's many unique uh, aspects to the Constitution. So it has a fascinating right. history. Yeah, it does. Well, let's let's get into that a little bit. What was the 
you know, as South Dakota is uh, created as a territory, just as the Civil War is beginning, and then seems to, for a wide variety of circumstances, take a long time to become a state. And many of those issues I was interested to read in your book about the desire to become a state uh, was driven by people who had served in the war, in the Civil War. And so there was a great deal of, um, I would say, profound appreciation for the meaning of the Constitution because of these men who had just risked their lives to preserve the Union. And this is a very different thing than, say, the Constitution of Massachusetts, which in some ways inspires the federal Constitution. But now this is kind of on the flip side of that. The states since 1789 are responding to the federal Constitution and such traditions that had since uh, emerged. What, can you walk through with us a little bit about what were those traditions? What were the constraints? What's the contours and what's the factors that as uh, these people in the territory are thinking about statehood and a constitution, what are those streams of thought that they're dealing with? Sure. Well, Ben, that's a interesting observation about the Civil War and Dakota Territory, because um, the, the territory was very much settled immediately after the, the Civil War with uh, a, a veteran. Civil War veterans came to play a very prominent role in it. Uh, but even backing up there, you know, from the beginning, Dakota, uh, from which South Dakota came, what was very much influenced by national politics and even the, the, the territory itself, you know, it did become a territory uh, right after the uh, election of President Lincoln. And, and that was all mired in, in the fact that, of course, the sectional conflicts leading up to the Civil War were developing and, and uh, southern states were leery about introducing more territories or, or forming more territories that would not be favorable to um, their interests on the issue of slavery. So even trying to get to be a territory was difficult in a way because of that national conflict. And once South Dakota became a territory then in 1861, it was a territory for more than 28 years. Now, contrast that with Minnesota. Minnesota was a territory for nine years. So for 28 years, uh, Dakotans struggled really with trying to get statehood. And mind you, when you think about statehood, statehood wasn't necessarily great deal. I mean, clearly they wanted statehood and statehood was going to give them many political and democratic benefits. But also when they were territory, the federal government picked up the bill for a lot of different things. States would then have to pick up the bill. So the people that pushed so hard for statehood and that that push lasted nearly 20 years, knew very well that by yeah. doing that, they were going to have to assume a lot of costs and burdens that the um, federal government was otherwise providing. So, you know, in, in that respect, it's an inspirational story about people wanting self-government and wanting to assume their own democratic responsibilities, even though it was going to cost them a great deal. Well, who were the leaders in this push then for statehood and what were some of the issues? The leadership really came from the town of Yankton. So Yankton was the, um, the territorial capital and that is uh, kind of an interesting story in itself. So Yankton was founded as a river port city, and it had a it, it, it had a very favorable steamboat landing. So steamboats could land their bees. So it so it became 
really the river port city for all of Dakota Territory and even west into Idaho and Montana. You know, the gold was discovered in Idaho and Montana in the 1860s, and Yankton became the kind of gateway. Now, here's an interesting stat I learned about Yankton. So during the 1870s, there were seven river cities whose water level was reported to the eastern investors, you know, investors and banks and that sort of thing that were engaging in investment in different types of trade. Well, Yankton was one of them. So along with St. Louis, Pittsburgh, and, you know, Yankton oh. really became a prominent port city kind of to that extent. Well, John Todd was a cousin to Mary Lincoln, the wife of Abraham Lincoln, and he um, developed a trading company in Yankton, became a leader in Yankton. And probably for that reason, Yankton became the de facto territory even before the first territorial legislature named it because it was the governor who was the personal physician of Abraham Lincoln he was named governor of the Dakota Territory, came out, and he just went to Yankton to live. That 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 probably very much sort of dictated that. Well, that's a, a roundabout. But Yankton became, the, I, I would say, really the, the political and intellectual leader of statehood. And the things that they considered, I think, were, were really twofold. One is they really wanted to become a state. They really wanted to become part of the union. They were very much inspired by the the patriotic fervor in the wake of the Civil War. Uh, they wanted to join this union. Union fever what was very um, high. Strangely enough, you know, they're coming from the Civil War where the South has seceded from the Union, and they were trying just as hard to get into the Union. But on the, then on the flip side, I think that, that there was, so that's the positive angle to statehood. The negative angle to statehood might have been the territorial system itself. So the territorial system was all run by the federal government. The, the president appointed the governor. The president appointed all the executive officers. There was just one territorial legislature, and that was fairly, well, that wasn't very strong. And so Dakota as a yeah. territory was really subservient to the national government. It didn't really have a say. They had a, a delegate to Congress, but they only had one congressional delegate. Uh, in order to try to influence Congress. So their influence was waning. And and um, I think it was a classic example. So you mentioned, Ben, um, the constitutional framers like James Madison. You know, James Madison talked about the dangers of a remote, powerful government, such as they had seen during the Revolutionary War era with, with England. Well, in a way, the federal government was right. like that. You know, communications were difficult. And corruption was kind of high because... There was little accountability. So just because of the system itself, corruption was high. And and we've seen that, that, that the Dakotans certainly had their share of corrupt governors. What were the the rules of becoming statehood? You had to have a certain amount of population. You had, you had to meet certain requirements. And at what point did South Dakota or did Dakota Territory meet that population threshold? Oh, um, you know, I can't tell you the year exactly, Ben, um, but it was very early. So... They had met the okay. population. You know, you um, we had the Dakota boom during the 1880s, so a lot of yeah. population coming into the railroads pushing into the state, and there was a kind of a there was a big population increase right after the Civil War, with particularly with um, Civil War veterans, you know, moving out here to um, Dakota, which included at this time both North and South Dakota. 
uh, met the population yeah. in, in South Dakota, particularly because they had more population. So it met the the requirement. And then, of course, uh, it, it took a decade to try to push it through. And that that alone is a interesting story just because of all the national politics involved. Right. Well, let's talk about that. The, this push for statehood is led by William Beadle and some other folks in Yankton. Yankton's kind of the focus of this. And, and they're talking in, I imagine, saloons and, and hotel bars and living rooms and so forth in Yankton, discerning some threats to their future. What is it that animates Beadle's drive for statehood? Yeah, Beadle, he's easy to uh, analyze, I think. He's a uh, uh, he, he was a leader from the early territorial days, and he's known, of course, for his leadership in education. Um, what, what really drove him was the fear that the school lands, so the lands set aside uh, by the federal government for the support of education, for public education, he was afraid that um, they'd be sold off at minimal prices to land speculators and it'd be lost. And that important resource would be squandered. He thought the only way to truly Mm. protect those was through a state constitution. But of course, to have a constitution, you have to have a state. And so he became an important statehood advocate because of his belief in education, his belief that these state lands had to be protected and in fact, they are then in this constitution protected. They could only be sold for $10 an acre. <laughs> Wouldn't we love to have that deal now? You know, yeah. <laughs> it, it, he, he would be able to protect that and create an endowment that still exists today. Well, to, to quote Article 8, which I think is in the same form as it was originally. This is the article about education and public lands to support the funding of education. It's got this great flowing sentence, the a Republican form of government depending on the morality and intelligence of the people. It shall be the duty of the legislature to provide for a free and public education at no charge, or words to that effect. Is that something that he just kind of pulled out of thin air, or what inspires that language? Do you know? Well, you know, you find that language in um, at the national level, uh, during the uh, debates leading up to the the uh, ratification of the U.S. Constitution, John Adams was particularly a strong proponent of this idea that that uh, to be a um, successful and stable democracy, it had to depend upon the sort of the morality and virtue of the public. You had that kind of language in the Northwest Ordinance. That language sort of frequently appeared during the founding era. And so to have it reappear a a century later in the state constitution, you know, the framers of the South Dakota constitution were very aware of not only other state constitutions because they studied other constitutions to try to get to pick from other state constitutions what they wanted, but they also studied the federal constitution. So that was at that time a very common language to have in uh, sort of our constitutional documents. Who are the 40s forces or the interests that wanted to maybe derail Beatles' use of the state lands or for public education? I mean, who? what are the forces that are after the, after the real estate? And I guess what I'm angling for here is it's not only homesteaders, but there's railroads, right? 
Sure, of course. Um, although railroads, of course, railroads across the country are getting their own land from the federal government. So, you know, the, um, the Union Pacific Railroad to the south and then the Northern Pacific to the north in North, what's now North Dakota, they all received a sort of massive U.S. government aid in terms of land, in the form of land grants. Uh, at one point, the Northern Pacific was the, uh, the 20, they owned, it owned 25% of the land in North Dakota. That, that's phenomenal. Wow. So, wow. Ben, we could go in. The story of railroads in South Dakota is its own unique story itself. Yeah. And I think there's a fascinating story yes, about the very first railroad in South Dakota, the, the railroad southern, the Dakota Southern uh, going from Sioux City to, to Yankton. That's a fascinating story. And actually, it's tied in with the statehood movement. But to answer your more specific question, there was clearly there there had to be opposition to it, Ben. But I don't get a I I, I didn't see mm-hmm. a lot in the historical documents about opposition per se to the school lands. It, in part because the railroads weren't getting any go- land from the government anyway in South Dakota, and speculators, um, you know, probably weren't uh, <laughs> probably weren't publicizing their desires to the degree that they opposed preserving the school lands. There were people who opposed statehood, but they didn't really articulate it on the basis of school lands. In your introduction, which is very helpful to the whole book, you kind of go through the capital fight too. Um, what does the argument about where the capital is uh, have to do with statehood? Is that, is that maybe just another source of frustration that uh, the feds are deciding where the capital is going to be and, and the residents don't get to need to have a say in that? Well, that's true. Again, the federal government's going to be very prominent in those kinds of decision in that capital fight. I, I don't know. The, the, there's so many different interesting aspects that I find to the to the South Dakota statehood movement. So the capital fight involving moving the capital out of Yankton and up to Bismarck. Um, although notice that both capitals then are on the Missouri River. But the right. capital move is inspired by Governor Ordway probably the most corrupt governor that Dakota had. And um, oh, there, there's so many different sort of aspects to this. Um, you know, one prominent, I mean, some arguments are that he he resented that Yankton was so oppositional to him. Another argument was that he owned land up in the Bismarck area and wanted to profit from that. And that wasn't entirely unusual. For so we Certainly Dakota territory had plenty of good governors, but they did have two governors that uh, certainly could be uh, accused of some corruption. That'd be Ordway and then Burbank uh, uh, earlier on. Uh, And out in the West here, I mean, again, they were not subject to a state government. They were subject to a federal government that was really overburdened because the, the government was so preoccupied with first the Civil War and then with Reconstruction, um, that they got away with a lot and, and they, they used their offices for, you know, personal profit. So Governor Ordway, um, you know, moved it. There, there was all kinds of accusations, particularly by Yankton, obviously was most affected in terms of the secrecy mm-hmm. involved. But what's generally thought is that Yankton, I mean, Ordway did... Um, uh, elicit the support of people from the territory, but he kind of bribed him to do it. 
So that yeah. occurred in 1883, the, the move up to Bismarck. Well, and that leads into, in 1883, this, the first state convention to draft the Constitution. Uh, before we get into maybe some of the convention happenings in Huron and then Sioux Falls and the ratification campaign, from the perspective of the person who maybe has got a land claim and let's say they're in Brookings County or Union County and they're just trying to make their way in the world, what was their sense of of all of this? Do you get a does Beetle have a sense of what the typical person is feeling about all this, or are they uh, detached, or is it a very connected, uh, small-town type of society uh, that's that's very engaged in politics? Let me answer that in two ways. First of all, it, it appears that okay. the, the general average person in what I'll call South Dakota uh, was very much yeah. in favor of, of statehood, despite the fact that, again, it was going to impose a financial burden. And South Dakota seems much more interested in statehood than North Dakota did, or the territory, which okay. we call the northern part of the territory that became North Dakota. So they seem very much um, uh, supportive of that. There was never, uh, that I could tell, a, a serious problem in the southern part of the territory to statehood. In fact, there were proposals by saying, look, let's divide the territory in two, and then we'll let the northern part stay a territory and southern, so, the southern part will become the state of South Dakota. So I think the, um, the support mm. was, was very high. That was not a burden. It was not a burden for the statehood um, advocates to elicit support within the southern part of Dakota. The burden was getting Congress to approve it. From Congress's perspective, uh, whether it be one South Dakota and and a Dakota territory remaining, or two states coming in, what was the concern in the mid eighteen eighties about two new states? Well, the concern here um, it was that there there were really two events that held up uh, South Dakota statehood. The first one had to do with this railroad I just mentioned, the Yankton Railroad. And I won't get into that unless you want it, because it's a little longer story. But what happened there is that the Republican senator from Maine refused to support South Dakota statehood because Yankton wasn't paying off its railroad bonds and his constituents held a large share of those bonds. Now, that's important because okay. when he was opposing yeah. it, the Republicans controlled Congress. When this issue was resolved then in 1883, approximately, by that time, the Democrats had won control of the House of Representatives. The Democrats okay. then um, did not want to grant, um, and remember, um, Grover Cleveland, then the Democrat, was elected president in 1884. The Democrats did not want statehood for North and South Dakota because this would bring in two states that would be clearly Republican. And, um, you, you know, the, obviously the political concerns there is we don't want to bring in two new yeah. Republican states. Um, and so that really drove then. I mean, there was just no matter what South Dakota did, it was not going to succeed at the federal level until Benjamin Harrison won the presidency um, in November of 
1888, and the Republicans took control of Congress. Well, that's interesting. And I guess I refer listeners to the earlier podcast a few months ago where we did on the winter mute and the shooting of McCook and so forth and all the railroad politics in Yankton and the bonds. Uh, we've had an earlier episode on that. So if you want to know all about that, you can go back to uh, that episode where we talked about that. It's a fascinating story. So when they have the convention then in Huron and so forth, do they do people show up with drafts ready to go? Um, in 1883, or 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 uh, what's the tone and tenor of the process? Yeah, the, the, there wasn't a pre-drafted uh, constitution. It really, once it, it started off, it was really the um, there were pre-convention um, uh, meetings that that to sort of organizing. So at the convention, the document was actually drafted. So it was an 1883 constitution draft that was produced out of that. Unfortunately, we don't have the minutes from the different committees. That would have really been helpful because that's where all the important drafting. We have minutes from the convention at, at large, but, um, and, uh, oh, I, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, we, we did a, a study of those debates. But those debates okay. really don't give you the full picture because, um, it doesn't tell you really what happened at the most important level, the committee level, that, pre- yeah. that actually drafted the various articles. So um, there was a constitution produced from that. So the, the state was trying to get, or, or the, 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 the territory was trying to get recognized as a state. And the first thing it had to do was to get permission or a, a law from Congress authorizing that. And then... Um, it would subject it to a vote to the um, to the people of the uh, territory, but Congress really needed a draft of a constitution to know whether to authorize it. But that's all kind of the mechanics. the The real, of course, right. underlying forces is that Congress wasn't about to give uh, South Dakota statehood, regardless of whatever constitution it had. And so, here's another aspect that's going on. So. You have an 83 constitu- uh, convention, you have an 85 constitution. Both of those, you know, those, both those conventions produce con- uh, constitutional drafts. But within that, there, are, there is a movement, you know, about should we just be a state? Should we just declare ourselves mm. a state? Um, shall we just um, uh, elect state officials, governor, um, uh, legislatures, and we'll just force Congress to recognize us. So this was really? an important, yeah, there was, was an important um, underlying theme in both 83 and 85. And um, other states had done that, mind you. So other states had done that. So this oh. wasn't anything new, but it seems as if the prevailing argument that swayed the day to not do that, uh, again, was directed, you know, by and to the Civil War veterans. They didn't want to come in mm-hmm. to the union in a kind of rebellious mode because they'd obviously had <laughs> very recent experience with yeah. rebellion by the states. And yeah. that argument seemed to, to win the day is that we're not going to come in um, as as rebels. We're going to come in, you know, according to the will of Congress, even if it's going to make us wait. Yeah, through the constitutionally prescribed way, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about that a little bit. It strikes me, we often use the term democracy or republic, and we can get very sloppy in what those words mean. And in fact, there's a bit of a debate about the difference between a democracy and a republic. What would William Beadle or um, some of the other drafters of the Constitution, they seem to use the word, well, maybe they don't, but my, my reading of it, they seem to use the word republic more than they might use the, the term democracy. What, what purpose does that term serve? And then what purpose would having a, a republic, smaller republican form of government serve in managing a, a strong and vital society? Maybe it's a little bit more philosophical, but um, what would they historically have, have thought about those issues? Yeah, I think you're right. People like Beadle, uh, they were more precise and <clears throat> careful in the language. They did refer to it as a Republican form of government, which is exactly the kind of government that occurs at the federal level, and which is the kind of government that the Constitution requires of states. Um, uh, not democratic governments, but Republican uh, forms of, of government. There's been a recent book uh, that's just come out uh, sort of exploring this this whole issue about we have a Republican form of government. What does that mean? And I think over time, uh, Ben, you make a good point here looking back at, you know, 130 years ago, 140 years ago, uh, people then knew very well the difference between democracy and Republican forms of government. We probably don't know that to that degree. Um, and, and we don't realize that um, uh, the, the in, in a way, kind of the, the structural intricacies of the federal um, constitution and how it's just not something like, um, uh, let's hold an election, everybody vote, and there it is. That's what we, we do. Um, there's right. a whole series of layers that we have to go through uh, in order to, you know, get the laws and policies that we have. And that often averts these men had just been through a civil war where where the, the intricacies were skipped over and the disaster of the war was very much upon them. So I think they, they probably had a very profound respect for a Republican form of government versus a demo- democratic form of government. Again, small d and small r about uh, the restraint of power being concentrated in too much, even even though it might be a vote of the people, it might be uh, something that, that they sought to restrain. Um, strikes me anyway that that was the case. But well, 1889 rolls around, and as you mentioned, President Benjamin Harrison is elected, and uh, he seems to jump on the the statehood bandwagon. He had been a proponent for it uh, while a senator that the uh, Dakota come in as a state and South Dakota, North Dakota. Uh, he seems to sign the statehood or get behind it with great speed and so forth. And so I think people, when they look at the South Dakota constitution, there's some striking differences between this and the federal constitution. Uh, one of it is the level of detail about things like taxation and revenue and responsibility of certain branches of government and so forth. That's far more explicit in the constitution than it is in the federal constitution. Uh, is there something that that comes to mind about the specificity of the the South Dakota Constitution that you'd like to point out? I think maybe I'd make a comment before that, 
Ben, to kind of piggyback on yours, and you're right. I mean, that's a that's a very accurate description of the South Dakota Constitution, the length and the specificity. Um, so mm -hmm. that reflects, I think, the nature of state constitutions versus federal constitutions. So this is an important uh, thing to realize. The federal constitution is an empowering document. So the federal government has no power except that which the constitution gives it. So therefore, it's a, it's a document that, that gives power and, um, and uh, sort of empowers or delegates the federal government uh, from that sense. The states, on the other hand, are different. They do have plenary power. They do have all the power. So states have power to begin with. Therefore, state constitutions are oftentimes called restrictive documents. What they do is they restrict power because the states, if there's no, essentially, if you have nothing in your constitution, maybe other than just a kind of a basic kind of one page, you know, uh, kind of organizational type of um, setup, the states have all the power. Um, so state uh, constitutions end up, first of all, they, they serve to restrict the power of the states. And then in doing so, you oftentimes that they get very policy oriented. Like, for instance, you mentioned education before. There is no education clause in the federal government, in the federal constitution, excuse me. Um, but there is in the South Dakota constitution. So that's a particular policy type of provision that you don't find in the, in the uh, federal constitution. But it also reflects other state constitutions where they can get very detailed about policy, like education. They can also get detailed about like the amount of, of indebtedness, the amount of taxation, things like this. You, you don't see the federal constitution ever doing something like that. That just simply the federal uh, document is like a, a blueprint for government, whereas the state, the South Dakota state constitution actually can be kind of like a substantive policy type of document that actually expresses a particular position on particular policies. It'd be correct or proper, I think, to say everyone was very concerned about balancing the budget if they're going to be paying this, uh, paying their way now as a state. Um, what's the appropriate level of taxation versus revenue that the state needs and the services that the states provide and that that clearly in the in the constitution is a requirement for the governor to propose a balanced budget to the legislature who then must pass a budget that is balanced is that uh, correct yes and um you, you know again i think it's important to think about the history of the of the um of the constitution the state constitution um, you're right about the, the Constitution seems very concerned about taxation, also seems very concerned about corruption. I mean, provisions in that that, that prohibit um, legislators, for instance, from um, uh, also serving in executive functions or uh, pro the prohibition of special interest laws. Um, when you see those in the state constitution, you're not surprised if you remember the territorial history and the fact that there was within the territorial system so much corruption, not necessarily, I think, because individuals were so corrupt, although some were, 
but corrupt because um, the territorial system was not like the constitutional system. James Madison knew very well you had to have, first of all, a lot of checks and balances with power, but also that that you had to have accountability and there had to be kind of a closeness um, of the, the people being governed with the governors. Well, in the territorial system, there wasn't that closeness. It was really being, you know, administered through um, Washington, D.C. There was no accountability because presidents would appoint these different officials, but the presidents weren't really attached. I mean, you know, President Grant, for instance, really wasn't, you know, with all that he had to deal with, he really wasn't mm-hmm. that connected with what was going on in the territory of Dakota, you know, at, at the other end of the country. And so I think when you see these different constitutional provisions and remember the the territorial experience in history, you, you're not surprised that uh, there are all of these protections or concerns with um, the possibly corrupt or abusive exercise of government power. Well, we see this in the news today. The, the state legislature has asked for a review of the constitutional meaning of a member of the legislature accepting a state contract. They're trying to figure out uh, where the line is. Uh, and that's been an interesting discussion to follow in the media, um, given the the authors of the Constitution and why they put it there in the first place and how that's being debated now. Um, well, a member of the Senate last year had to resign because she was deemed to have done something uh, that, that crossed the line. So that, yeah, that, that echoes still all the way up to 2022 and 2023. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good, um, you know, observation of how, yeah, the concerns of the 1870s and 1880s are still resonating now, 140 or 50 years later. There's also, I was surprised to see, but then again, it is kind of a, uh, an echo of the times of the 1880s. There's a Bill of Rights in the South Dakota Constitution. Any key differences between the federal constitution of, or federal Bill of Rights of the 1791 uh, ratification and so forth and South Dakota's Bill of Rights um, that have been adjudicated to uh, or are remarkable in any way. Yeah, in general, the the state Supreme Court has followed the um, U.S. Supreme Court on those basic rights that appear in both the um, state Bill of Rights and the federal Bill of Rights. Um, One issue that is... um, that is a little different in um, the state constitution involves uh, funding of religious institutions. Um, So the state constitutions Mm. prohibits any money from going to um, any religiously affiliated institution. Now, the, the interesting aspect of this is this is what was called a state Blaine amendment after Senator Blaine Senator Blaine tried to get this provision enacted into the federal constitution, a, a, a restriction against any funding going to religious schools. The reason for that was because at the time there had been much immigration, particularly from Ireland into the U.S., bringing their Catholic religion. And then the Catholic school system was getting set up. Senator Blaine um, uh, reflected those interests that did not want to, you know, 
you know, they were suspicious of this sort of new um, uh, influx of of people and um, their particular religious beliefs or the the possible, you know, social effects of the, these beliefs, whatever. And so he wanted to make sure that there was no federal money or public money going to this uh, alternative school system. Um, he did not succeed, yeah. but many Western states ended up adopting these so-called like state Blaine amendments. And, and of course, it's it's always been in the state constitution. But given the recent um, given the recent decisions by the Supreme Court, uh, you know, one has to wonder whether that is a, a a constitutional provision within the dictates of the U.S. Constitution. Right. There's been a couple, well, in the last decade, I think Missouri, Montana, Maine, ironically, uh, have had lawsuits go to the Supreme Court about education funding and, and, uh, and that, that those have been discriminatory on the basis of religion, which is right. a First Amendment violation and maybe a 14th Amendment violation, depending on the court uh, on the case. So I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the 1972 and the uh, constitutional revisions and so forth. Uh, certainly the 60s and 70s are a time of great change in this country, civil rights. We think of that going on and uh, a lot of environmental concerns. The EPA has started in the Nixon administration and uh, LBJ's Great Society is, is, is started in the late 60s and into the 70s. So it, it strikes me that maybe there's a link between these constitutional changes that come about in 1972 and the Knipe administration. Is there a link between the kind of the growth of the federal government and the state government attempting to keep up or what's, what's the inspiration for these modernizations and changes in 72? It would be hard for me to say that there was no link, you know, because the changes in the country, the changes and the changes during the 1960s were just so profound that it it would be difficult to say that there wasn't a a link. Um, But I think if I was just going to be more specific, I really think that the, um, the 72 amendments, which were profound, I mean, it was really, um, you know, uh, kind of a, a, a study and review of the state constitution and, um, you know, how it could be updated, how it could be improved, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to look at it in, in the light of the, um, well, it'd be in the light of uh, about 80 some years of uh, about 85, 86 years of, of experience. I think it was prompted a lot by this sense of, of good government, this sense of like um, uh, civic reform, this, this sense of how can we make the government more responsive um, at the same time, more accountable. And I, I think that was very prominent in, in South Dakota. So I would say that while the national movements clearly had to have had a, 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 an impact in one way or the other, I think the more immediate and more powerful um, force was this sense in South Dakota of good government. And that perhaps it's time after experiencing our constitution with the way it worked and with the new challenges ahead, how can we make it better and more uh, responsive? 
I, I would guess in a way they tried to streamline it and um, they, they tried to streamline it uh, and to um, sort of uh, sort of accommodate it with sort of uh, obviously by this time, state administrative agencies were far more um, uh, important and pervasive than they had been in, uh, you know, the 1890s. Uh, and so these changes then were really sort of tried to meant to to streamline um, state government and to um, and to make state government more sort of accountable and responsive to um, uh, to the people and the issues uh, you know that were you know occurring yeah. at the time. Yeah, I've seen charts of say state government in the 1940s and 50s with just a an enigma of boards and commissions that handled everything from minutia to broad things like roads and schools. And, uh, and then after the constitutional reforms are through, now we have far more defined departments. Well, and it does away with a constitutional official. It's the um, superintendent of public instruction used to be elected and now is appointed by the governor. Um, so that would be one major change, I think. Uh, yes. occurred and the and the responsiveness to elective politics that uh, one might have had in the 1920s uh, arguably could be could be dimmed a little bit through the mirror or not depending on the governor I think could be more responsive through a governor than uh, another constitutional official um, mm-hmm. in any event um, and and uh, it is it is responsive. It is remarkable. You know, the Capitol was built in 1910, and all of state government fit in the Capitol at the time. The governor's office, the legislature, the attorney general, the Supreme Court, which is still in the Capitol. The three branches of government are still in the Capitol, but of course, the attorney general now is, is outside the Capitol, uh, and all the departments and agencies, the Department of Transportation, DSS, Education, and so forth, are spread around town. And uh, it's it's become quite of a, a sprawl compared to everybody being in that same building uh, as it was in 1910, 11, 12. So, yeah, you uh, know, Ben, in, in a way, uh, just a kind of an architectural glance uh, like that could tell you a lot about, you know, how our governing processes uh, have ha- has changed. You know, you, you're right. That's a good point. You You look at one building and you say, that was the center of everything. Now, if you just kind of look at here, here is where state government is now located. Um, well, you, you obviously get a much different picture. And, and the same thing happens at the federal level, too. Well, Patrick, thanks a lot for walking us through the state history of the Constitution. We'll, we'll link, by the way, to the copy that was produced by the 1889 convention that's online at the South Dakota State Archives, we'll, we'll put a link to that on the show, and you can check out the handwritten copy of the 1889 convention, Constitutional Convention, and what they produced. But, Pat, thanks a lot for joining us on History 605. Well, thank you, Ben. It's been very enjoyable talking with you. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.